Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today on my program, I have the honor to interview Frank and Erica Kemp. Frank and Erica were converted in Boston, and then they went and planted a church in Tokyo, Japan. Tokyo is considered by many church growth experts to be the hardest mission field in the world. It's considered to be the Mount Everest of mission fields. When they went there in the late 80s, it was a very small, struggling church, very tiny, almost about to close down. And over the course of the next 10 years, they grew it to over 1,000 disciples. Today on my podcast, we'll be talking about how they did that. What, what was God doing? And how can we learn from the growth that we saw there in the first 10 years so we can apply that in every mission field around the world? Frank and Erica, great to have you here on the program. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here with you, Rob. It's good to see you again. I know. It's fantastic. We spent some awesome years in, in Japan together. Frank and Eric, can you, can you share with me, how did you guys become Christians? Well, I became a Christian at Tufts University as a freshman. Believe it or not, I was one of those few people who got door knocked <laughs> and invited to Bible talk. And I went. And the only reason I went was because one of my other um, friends from the dorm was also going to go. And I would have never gone as a Buddhist to a Bible study. <laughs> but if it wasn't for her, I just uh, would have never imagined going. But that was how I, I first was introduced to the Bible. And I'd never seen a Bible before. I'd never touched a Bible before. I'd never read a Bible before. And so... I was very impacted by the Bible talk. And after that Bible talk, I started studying the Bible and it took me three months, but um, I was 17 years old and I was baptized into Christ. Wow. Right. What a great story. Yeah. So Erica was much better hearted than me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was your uh, sort of typical hypocrite, religious hypocrite. I grew up going to my parents' church. Um, and it was a Korean church it planted in uh, Lily White, Minnesota. And so in a way, I think God was actually using that because I learned how to move between two different worlds, mm. between the world in which I lived with high school and everybody else that was just American. And then uh, on Sunday or the weekends, uh, living in a Korean environment. And I had no idea that someday those, that kind of cross-cultural experience was going to make a difference in my life. Wow. But I was a hypocrite. I would... Uh, go out on the weekends and uh, do everything in Galatians 519 and then show up on Sunday and teach a kid's class or something. Because I, was one of the <laughs> kids. I went to college and got my freedom and the first semester just went crazy. But, um, you know, I was at Harvard and so, and I did well. And so, uh, so many goals that I'd set for myself were being fulfilled, but I felt so really empty inside. Mm. And I'll never forget uh, early in the spring semester, getting up one morning, after a major party and looking at the room being trashed and thinking, um, that's how my life is. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a mess. It's mm. trashed. It's dirty. Wow. And uh, that day, I went to my best friend and I said, I want to start going to church. Do you want to come with me? And he had never gone to church, but I persuaded him. He was on the Harvard hockey team. Mm. And we went to church that Sunday, sat in the back, fell asleep, 
woke up at the end. I felt awesome. I'd gone to church, <laughs> you know, but the amazing thing is that next week, like Erica, I was sitting in someone else's room. So it wasn't my room. And someone came by and door knocked the room and no one in the room wanted to go, but I had just made this decision. So I said, yeah, I'll go to the Bible study. And um, honestly, I think if he had door knocked us one week earlier, I wouldn't have gone. Wow. So it was just God's incredible timing. So there's a long story after that. I was stubborn. I was prideful. I was scared, uh, but I was amazed by the Bible. I'd never really read it, had it applied to my life. And there's a part of that that's uh, incredibly clarifying and the part that's scary because you know you're exposed. So it took me, unlike Erica, three months. It took me um, all year. It wasn't, that was in, I think, March or April. And I wasn't baptized till November. Um, but, uh, and so that, that fall when they had the church banquet, uh, they give out a prize for the, they call it the asbestos prize. We're sitting through more of Kit McKean's fire breathing sermons without changing than anyone else. And I got the prize for the year. <laughs> but uh, it, it was, uh, it was amazing. I mean, once I finally gave my life over to Christ, it was all systems go all right, in. And, right. uh, and it was just great to see, you know, my roommate became a Christian right afterwards. My best friend from high school became a Christian. Uh, it was great. Wow. It's amazing. So you guys were both door knocked. That's pretty awesome. There, there's something to say about door knocking. Now, how did you guys meet? You guys are obviously you're in the same church, but. Well, the first time we met was on a bus. Um, we were both invited to a campus retreat. And so we just happened to be in the same bus going to the retreat. And uh, one of the uh, Christians said, hey, you should meet um, these guys from Harvard. And so they introduced me. And, um, and then Frank and I just started talking. And there were so many things that were similar that we liked and hobbies and stuff like that. And that was the very first time we met, but there was no sparks or anything at that right. point. I was dating another guy and I was actually engaged, um, believe it or not, at a young age. So um, yeah, that was the first time. Yeah. And then she got baptized and, <laughs> uh, and uh, we were both kind of interested in, well, she was very interested in someone else. I was kind of interested in someone else, but she had a really nice car. <laughs> And so and, and we started working in the teen ministry together. Okay. And so while we were in the teen ministry, I had to know her and I started borrowing her car to go out on dates with other people. But then uh, at the end, I would always drop off my date, go to her dorm, and she would drive me back to campus, drop me off, and then go home. She was so incredibly kind. I mean, wow. that's amazing to do that. Right. But we would end up sitting in the car talking after my other date. Oh, and it got longer and longer. And I thought, <laughs> oh, I really like that part of the night better than the day itself. <laughs> so that's kind of how we hooked up. But, you know, it, we had so many things in common and being Asian uh, American was a big bond as well. I'm sure. I'm sure. Now, so from that time, what, how long before you guys got married? We got married. It was almost three years later, um, was two years and like three or four months. Okay. And, um, yeah, so we, we dated and, uh, it was, it was just like 
a, an instant connection throughout the time. We really got along well. We had fun together. We did ministry together. We did teens and campus ministry together. So we had a lot of um, connections that um, drew us even more. And of course, God mm -hmm. was like the foundation of it all. Right. Now, what, well, what year were you guys baptized? I was baptized uh, December of 81. Okay. And I was baptized November of 80. And okay. we, you know how you kind of officially start dating? Right. So we started dating steady in 82, the fall of 82. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that was a, such an, ex, must have been such an exciting time, early years of the Boston church. Can you just describe what the atmosphere was like? What, what did it feel like in the church at that time, those early years? What was your Great impression? Question. That's a great question. I was really young. So um, for me, I would say in the early years, my feeling was that church was a family. The Boston church was still really small in comparison to what it is today. And so I felt like um, I had a lot of friends, not just in the campus ministry, but the older, um, more wiser people <laughs> who, who were in their 40s. That's what I thought were old. Yeah, they were old, <laughs> right? The old timers. Um, we became my friends as well, which I really appreciated. Um, I appreciated, you know, people reaching out to me and I felt like it was a real family mm. and, um, there was a lot of love, a lot of, um, just trust in one another and fellowship. And there wasn't any walls between the ministries at that point in Boston. Like mm. there wasn't like a campus ministry, singles ministry, married ministry, and that you stayed within those silos but it was just we were all together which made it so much more of a family feel right mm, wow yeah and i think you know we were it wasn't about kind of uh structuring our growth but it was inspiring in us that we would find our way to please god and live for him you wow. know i remember um uh, i got baptized and then my friend got baptized and uh there's a couple of guys ahead of us. We had five brothers at, at Harvard and we had been Christians then for about four months and no one had ever asked us to speak at church. And that really bugged us. <laughs> I mean, we've been around for four months, you know? And so we decided to have our own Harvard brothers weekend retreat. And so we literally stayed in our dorm room for three days over a weekend and we organized our schedule we printed it out we all gave each other speeches oh my god we sat and listened to but that's the kind of atmosphere it was mm. it's just you just go and do things for god and um and the sky was the limit wow. it was uh it didn't have to be planned for you you were able to go and explore right yeah, there was very little structure in the church at the time mm. so it, it allowed for people to just grow and become what they needed to be for God. So that was a cool thing at that time, I, I would say. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. We have so many incredible memories. Eric and I were just talking about Friday night campus devos. Mm -hmm. Just walking in. I, I think you probably had that at Berkeley too, but the singing and the passion and the love that was in there. And uh, it was just a, it was a very special time. Yeah. Very, very special time. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, Frank, you became an evangelist at the age of 21. Now, I don't remember the last time someone became a Christ, or an evangelist 25, <clears throat> let alone 21. I mean, that's probably the earliest I've ever heard anyone um, other than, you know, Timothy in the Bible. <laughs> how, did, how did that happen? I mean, what, what was going on there? 
It's it's it's, it's inspiring. Um, probably it was a mistake. <laughs> um, certainly standards were lower at the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there might have been some desperation. I don't know on the part of the church. So um, yeah, I, I I think there's a little bit of truth in all of that. I'm sure. Um, but I. I became a disciple when I was 19. And back then, as we were just talking about, the church was growing so quickly that uh, there was an incredible need, a consistent need uh, for leadership. Mm -hmm. And so it was only a matter of time, just a few months before, you know, you started getting a responsibility like leading your own Bible study group, right, mm -hmm. on campus. Right. And so immediately you were uh, given responsibility. And uh, I then remember, uh, because I had this kind of connection in my own denominational church with working with teenagers, I was with Kip one night during our discipleship time, and we we're talking about the teens, and he had just come back from doing a youth rally in Detroit, and he talked about how sad he was that after he'd gotten all these kids fired up, they're going to walk out of the door and completely lose their faith. Mm. And so uh, we talked about the teen ministry. And so he asked me to lead the teen ministry. And at that time, we had seven teens, most seven. And most of them were kids that someone had met at a bus stop or somewhere and just brought to church in the course of evangelizing. Mm -hmm. So none of them were kingdom kids. We had no kingdom kids at the time. Mm -hmm. and, and so we started with these seven teenagers. But because of Kip's passion for it and because the Boston leadership was passionate about it, there were only a few kids and I was only 20 years old or 19 years old at the time, but they gave me a leadership group. Wow. And this leadership group was like a young married couple from Harvard, from MIT graduate school and people like Erica and other people who are super sharp, mm -hmm. you know, Guillermo Adame from Harvard. Right. And so that ministry then gave me the opportunity at a young age to plan retreats. Uh, we did all weekend devotionals. We did all of our Bible talks, training the Bible talk leaders. Um, uh, we had Sunday classes every week before church because those kids who are non-Christian family kids couldn't come to a midweek. Mm. And then learning how to deal with their parents who were often upset in mm -hmm. you know, getting you know, older people involved and working with them, sometimes baptizing the parents of the teens. So all of that gave me like, a really truncated training experience that you normally don't get. Right. Right. You know what I'm saying? And yes. so, yeah. And God blessed it. We had 16 baptisms the first year. I remember this stat more than any other stat. We had 23 <laughs> the next 26. And then we had 40 teenagers baptized. That's amazing. And, yeah. And it was, uh, and so when I graduated, they gave us an adult region, about 120 married, mostly married adults, but many of them were parents of teens that I'd been working with. Mm. And so there's already sort of that adult connection. Right. So I think that part of my opportunity was I had, by God's grace, been put in this very unique situation to get a tremendous amount of experience in a very short period of time. Right. Well, I mean, the reason why I ask is it's, it's exceptional. It's remarkable. But at the same time, I remember back in the eighties, um, you know, I, be, I became an evangelist at 25, and at the time, that that didn't seem very young to me. It seemed normal, seemed very average. There were quite a few people that were becoming that. Was, that seemed like the typical time period to become a Christian or become an evangelist. And my first planting was at, at 25, also. And so, I feel like 
in the kingdom today, it's more typical for people to become evangelists in their 30s, late 30s. And um, can you speak to that? I mean, what, what can we do to move it up, to appoint people, get leaders who are younger, with more energy um, in, in this day and age? Any thoughts on that? It's a yeah, great question. That is an excellent question. For yeah, because actually I became a women's ministry leader. I was appointed at 21 as well. Oh my gosh. And, I think, and then I, I think what happens is a lot of people now, the older, I would say the older generation, I think that we have to be willing to step aside. And um, I know we're going to talk about Tokyo later, but I appreciated people like George and Irene who originally planted the church in Tokyo in the 1950s, but they didn't control how we did church when we first got there. It was, they stepped aside and allowed us to lead. And sometimes I think it's hard when you watch somebody younger (laughs) (laughs) and and they're making a lot of mistakes and they're saying a lot of things that maybe they shouldn't say but still giving them the chance and believing in them and allowing them to lead. I think that's, we have to allow the younger people to take leadership and not be protecting. You know, I think it's what, how even parents raise their kids these days, we call them lawnmower parents, you know, how they fix the lawn in front of them as they're moving forward. And, uh, (laughs) and I think it's that same concept that we have, even as we're, raising up leaders is right. I think we try to make everything perfect before they can actually be appointed, but wow. let them make their mistakes. That's how they're going to learn and grow. And, right. and that's how I feel like, um, we, we learned and that's right. how we grew. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I would agree with that. I think maturity comes with responsibility, not with chronology. Right. I think sometimes we think if you get old enough, you become mature, but that you and I both know, some of the older people that we know are just so immature because they've never taken responsibility. Right. And so we've got to be willing to give, just like Erica was saying, responsibility to younger people and let them make their mistakes and support them through that and teach them through that. But I think they'll grow a lot faster. Amen. Now, okay. I don't, I want to focus this podcast primarily on the first 10 years of the Tokyo planting, but can, before you went there, you went to Paris, then you're in San Francisco. Can you tell me a little bit about your mission to Paris? How you got there? I mean, you guys are, you're both Asian. You don't look <laughs> Parisian to me at all. You know, that is actually, Rob, one of the great <laughs> mysteries of the world. <laughs> so, but um, I'll give you the backstory is that we were planning to go to Los Angeles. Okay. Wow. Okay. I didn't and know that. We'd already been interviewed. And we had been accepted and plans were being laid for us to go to work in the LA church. Right around that time, the couple that was leading the Paris mission team, they had to step aside for personal reasons. So that left a gap. And we were sort of next in line in Boston in terms of maturity. And, you know, uh, of course, Kip never misses a beat. He realized that Erica was fluent in French. This is not, <laughs> this is not necessarily well known for Erica was fluent in French because she had been taking French since she was five. Oh my gosh. She wow. was winning contests along the East Coast. <laughs> in French. All right. And so I remember going out to lunch and him saying, so we'd like 
to ask you to consider leading the Paris mission team. And I said, I'm not French. <laughs> because I know, I said, I don't speak French. He said, I know, but Erica speaks French. I said, that's great that Erica speaks French. I don't speak French. He says, you'll learn, you know. And so, uh, so we decided to go on what they call a language internship. And so we went in 1985 for like two months, three months. It was from May to almost September. Yeah. Okay. So we went for several months. Wow. We took a lot of French. We actually baptized people. Wow. And so we were in at that point. Yeah. We baptized like four or five people that summer. <laughs> I know it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, but I, yeah. They were just turning themselves. In. <laughs> wow. But we, we did, we did um, worship with a, a mainline church there. Right. That was so kind to us. We, awesome. To this day, I have great memories of that time. And the minister, we would just bring the visitor and the minister would lead the Bible study groups. And, um, and then we would study with them personally. Got it. And, and then they got baptized miraculously. <laughs> it was, yeah. So that's how we ended up in Paris. And we went back uh, in 86 after we put the team together. And uh, we were there from July 86. Erica went pregnant. So uh, oh Miyoko was born in October, but we were there in July. July of 86 to the, the following uh, we spring. Until the, August uh, of... We went to San Francisco in August. So I think it was July of 87 yeah. when we left. Yeah. Okay. So you're there for a little over a year. Why did you go to San Francisco? So right then, um, Scott and Lynn had been in San Francisco and had helped with the church there for a year to help rebuild it and to um, make sure that it, it was growing well. And they were only planning to be there for a year. So it was a transition transitional move for them and so we were asked to kind of help in the transition because we they ideally what the idea was we were going to go to japan afterwards so that we could continue on with the transition of helping this church so we went to san francisco for a year but it was one of the most amazing it's kind of like those years in camelot like that that one you know, spark of a year and people to this day still remember it Yeah, because it was like God put his loving hand on that one year and did the incredible things in San Francisco. It was amazing. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you, do you mind if I tie that in with how we ended up in Tokyo? Feel free, please. Yeah. So what happened was the year that we were in Paris that winter, we went to visit Erica's family in Japan. And George and Irene Gerganis were already in Tokyo with sort of foundation that they were building for the mission. And um, so we stayed with them and they asked us to speak. So it was a Sunday. I was speaking. Eric was there sharing. She's sharing in Japanese. Wow. And I look like everybody else in the audience. <laughs> and Eric in the fellowship, just going crazy, talking to people. And, and that Sunday, Al Baird, and Bob Gimple, the elders from Boston, just happened to be visiting. Oh my gosh. So as soon as church was over, they told us this later, they went into the kitchen with George and they said, why are Frank and Erica in Paris? <laughs> you know, they, they, that, they should be here. Right. And so that's kicked off apparently some discussions. And then we were asked that spring later to move from Paris to go to Tokyo. 
And we had begged to go directly because we had made this big deal about, we'll never come back to America. We're going right, on the mission right. field. But they said, no, you got to go to San Francisco. We need you there. Okay. And so praise God they said that. Because like Erica said, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, because that's in San Francisco was when we met so many of the future leaders of Tokyo. Right. And right. of all the Asian churches right. that eventually became the pack rim. Mm -hmm. So it's just like God just knew through the Holy Spirit just that one year to connect us with these people and that would eventually move to Korea, to Bangkok, Philippines, Philippines all over Asia and start churches. Because if we hadn't gone there, we wouldn't have met those people. Yeah, it was like you guys, mm -hmm. you and Ra, um, you and Pam, right? Chris and Allison Jacobs, Takeshi mm -hmm. Yamazaki, and uh, um, Anthony and San Galang. Right. You know, so many of the great heroes of Asia were in San Francisco, I and who it. knew? And I we just ended it. up showing up one day, and everybody was everybody was there. Yeah. Okay. So you guys were in Paris, but you went on vacation to Japan. That's that's when you visited, and then. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's, that's great. I'm just yeah. trying to put and we were visiting Erica's family at the time. <laughs> that's why we were there. Okay. But, but they asked us to speak. But your, we but your there. family is from Southern Japan, right? So they're from Kyushu. Yeah. So what were you doing in Japan just to visit and encourage the church there? What were your, was your dad um, there in Tokyo at the time? We, I think we joined with your family in Tokyo and then traveled to Kyushu. Got or it. Something. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what right. happened. But yeah, there was no direct flights in those days. So it was like you stopped in Tokyo and then we went down to my family's in Kyushu. But since we were in Tokyo, the church asked us to share. That's right. awesome. That's and, and, you know, again, the talk that we had was, but I'm not Japanese, <laughs> but you look Japanese and I don't speak Japanese, but Erica speaks Japanese. So basically our missionary career is the pathway is Erica knows what she's doing. She speaks the language <laughs> and I'm just trying to figure things out along the way. Well, that's, that's, I mean, there's so much to talk about there. I mean, I remember when you guys came to San Francisco and, and everyone was so excited. It was an amazing year. There were so many people getting baptized. And, um, and at the same time, I remember I just graduated from, from UC Berkeley and there were a ton of Japanese kids becoming Christians, people in ESL classes. And I remember, remember thinking as a relatively young Christian, like, man, these Japanese people are just wide open because it just seemed like it was almost yeah. effortless. You know, people like Chikako and, and Yoshie Shinsei, they were studying the Bible with these people and yeah. baptizing them. And, you know, only later, years later, when I realized how challenging it is to help a Japanese person become a Christian. <laughs> yes, but yes. at the time... I really believe, you know, looking back, I go, that was God's power in preparing a mission team to go to Japan. And uh, and even going to UC Berkeley, it was a, quite a culture shock for me. I grew up in a real pretty much all white, you know, small town in California. Mm -hmm. And going to Berkeley, you know, it's it's predominantly it's Asian. Diverse. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a lot of Asian people. And and it was like God, God, God laid the groundwork for that mission planting. But anyway. I, so interesting. So, okay. So that's how you're called to go to Tokyo. Basically you, you, um, going on behind the scenes. So you went to San Francisco. How did you form the team? Talk, talk to me about how you got everyone together and then going over, how did you form that mission planting and what was going on there? Well, you want me to start? Mm -hmm. 
So there's kind of two pieces to that, right? So in 1986, when we went to Paris, George and Irene, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, because you can't talk about Tokyo without George and Irene, right. Gurganis, they went back to Tokyo mm. to start spearheading what they were planning to be a future effort. Okay. And so what had happened was there were several people, just like you're talking about, who had come to America to study and they were in college or they're in graduate school and they ended up running into one of our churches studying the bible becoming a christian and they went back to tokyo okay and um and george and irene kind of gathered that group together i see and then they brought over two interns a woman named beckett cuddy from boston and then steve schoff okay and so they formed sort of a pioneer you know pre-planting group and uh and so that that was one group that was there okay um, and then we, after we started leading the team, uh, you know, you, back then you'd have a Boston World Mission Seminar. Right. Oh, and yeah. then everybody, every mission team leader would set up a booth you know, <laughs> and you'd have a dinner or breakfast and sure. you'd invite everybody who was interested in coming. And, you know, it was the kind of time where if, if you had life in you, if you breathed and you could walk. <laughs> You wanted to go on a mission team somewhere, Def right? You definitely. Oh my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> so we would have a room full of people who wanted to go to Japan. And, and then from that, we were able to select several people. But by and large, just like you referred to earlier, I would say that most of our mission team came from the San Francisco church mm -hmm. where we happened to be. Yeah. And so we started having periodic devotionals, maybe at least once a month. And all the Japanese... Christians would come over, people who wanted to go to Japan would come over to the apartment, we'd have a devotional. And we benefited greatly from the fact that many of them already knew each other. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, when you go into the mission field, those relationships, that's all you got. Right. That's what keeps you faithful. That's it, exactly, because <laughs> right. it's tough. And, and so the fact that a lot of these, these guys and a lot of us knew each other from San Francisco, right. that formed a very, very strong foundation for when we finally went. So those two groups kind of came together when we went. Got it. Okay. So um, tell me about your departure. What was the situation like when you first arrived in Tokyo? Well, the situation in Tokyo when we first got there, there was a lot of tension, honestly. Um, George uh, was the official kind of representative of the church legally. And... Um, there was a group of uh, converts that were from back in the 50s and 60s who had basically kind of taken over the property um, of the church. And they started a school on the property, which really wasn't totally legal to do, um, but they were doing a for-profit business on a nonprofit piece of land. Got it, okay. And, um, and so there was a lot of tension at church between George and those people who were doing the business mm -hmm. of who, do, who really owns the church I or see. who has the, the rights to the church and the land, okay. which were originally given by George and Irene's um, uh, church that they used to worship in many, many years ago. Um, it was through contributions that they were able to buy this land. And so we jumped into this tension <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was very difficult, but George took it upon himself to deal with the older group. 
which we really appreciated. And he allowed us to focus on the younger group. And even during that time, I remember George got shingles because he was under so much stress. And um, we had to go. We had to go to trial, but it, we ended up um, figuring it out outside of court. But it was so much tension there um, mm. between the older members and the and the young mission team group. Right. And so that was the situation when we first got there. Right. And and the the older group was it was very small. You know, I I, I can't really tell you how many it was exactly, but. Right probably between actively coming to church and everything, maybe about 15 people or so. And, and several of them were incredibly good hearted. Yes. I mean, there were were, a few that were amazing. uh, We were like the fulfillment of their dreams for the church. They were so supportive, so loving, and several are still in the congregation as of this day, which is so heartwarming to me. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them died while, you know, in the first few years because of old age, but it was just, they were amazing people too. And it was just these businessmen that were, doing the school that were causing the problems. Okay. Okay. So what happened was we, we would meet with the whole church on Sunday morning. Right. And then in the, you know, they, they ran the service and then in the afternoon or that evening, we would have a mission team meeting. Okay. And that was considerably louder. (laughs) (laughs) More exciting. It was, it was really good because I would sit in the back and watch all our young little mission team members. And I would make fun of the guys who were falling asleep during the morning service (laughs) because you don't even understand what's going on. Japanese was a foreign language. And, uh, but, um, I found in my files, Rob, you'd be proud of me because I was thinking about today. This is a uh, speech that I gave the Consolidated Church April 9th, 1989. Oh my gosh. We arrived in 88. That night, what happened was the old church, the church that we were, that we had all placed membership with, uh, we had grown and the church had decided to appoint me as the evangelist. Wow. Until then, I was not the evangelist of the church. I never preached on Sunday morning. Hmm. And um, at that time, we uh, also, they voted to rename the church from the Yogi Hachiman Church to the, which is the location of it, right. to the Tokyo Church of Christ wow. to indicate the vision and the mission of the church. Wow. So, so, so we were under like a, we had to be voted because we had, there was a certain number of members that didn't want us to be there. So until we grew our membership to a certain point, it didn't. You know, <laughs> right. we then finally they could all vote Frank in, which was amazing. <laughs> but I have here, Rob, that we had um, we had forty baptisms during that first nine months, the that's ten am- months that. No, that's amazing. When we arrived, isn't that amazing? Oh my gosh! So okay, so now, what- back then I thought that wasn't good enough at all. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, know what I'm talking no, about. Totally don't. Oh my gosh. It well, felt like failures at that I mean, time. I was talking to Randy McKean about that. And, you know, back, I remember back then, it seemed like if you don't have a hundred baptisms in the first, you know, first year, you're a complete, you know, failure. But yeah. That's amazing. 40 baptisms. Okay. So what, when, what month, what year did you get, get back in Japan? When did you arrive? Was it the fall of 88? July 88, wasn't it? Yeah, it was in 88. I believe it was in the summer. Yeah. Yeah, because remember we had one big, huge church picnic in San Francisco? Yes. 
right? Yeah. And I remember it was one of the most epic yes. touch football games ever played <laughs> in history. I mean, it was like a, we had Tony Chooks back there lobbing, you know, 60 yard passes, you know, it was amazing. And uh, we had a barbecue and then we left. And it was August yeah, of 88. It was probably August of 88. Because we, we went on vacation. That's right. With Miyoko. Yeah. So. Oh, I remember Miyoko was so small then. Just amazing. Yep. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the Gerganises. Um, they, can you talk about just before that, how did they get to Japan? Can you just do a quick update on like the background of the church? Because you're, 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 you're not just walking into a situation where there's nothing there. There's, there was a building there and there's some history. Can you explain that? Cause I think yeah. that's super important. Yeah. There's no, there's no way you can talk about the Tokyo church without talking about George and Irene Uganis. They are absolutely the father and mother of the church. Um, and I, I wish we could do a whole program on them for young people because they are the kind of heroes that you want them to have. Mm. But George and Irene uh, were raised in the traditional churches of Christ. And um, uh, George had a career with an airline, but he gave it up because he wanted to preach the word. And, um, and so they... Just, they, they both wanted to be missionaries. And uh, Irene originally wanted to go to Africa, but uh, she ended up marrying a guy who decided to go to Japan. So they <laughs> went to Japan. And they arrived in 1951, uh, 50 or 51, to war-torn Japan. There was still rubble in the streets because of all the carpet bombing that had happened during World War II. It was a very poor situation. Um, they were working with another church for a few years, and then they got funding and started the Yoyogi Hachiman Church, which is, became the Tokyo Church in 1952. And um, they built a building, and you know you saw it, but it looked like it had basically been picked up from Arkansas <laughs> and put down. It was just an American design, and they put it in Tokyo. So they broke all the rules. They had bathrooms in the lobby, which was extremely rude to a Japanese person. They did all these different funny things, but. It was a church building and they got the land pretty cheap because there was a plan to expand the roadway in front of the church where the front yard was, but it was many, many years off. So they got the land cheap and they put the building there. Yeah. The land was like $300,000, you know, in 1952. And, you know, later on it was worth tens of millions of dollars. Wow. <laughs> So during, yes, and during that time, you know, George had a passion for church camps. So they also purchased a piece of land at the foot of Mount Fuji, and they built a Christian camp there for all the churches of Christ in Japan. And um, they, their method of evangelism was to work with young kids. And so they baptized all these like teenagers wow. who have went on to become executives at major corporations around Japan. It was kind of an amazing we thing. We even had a judge. Wow. Right. A Tokyo high court judge. But eventually the membership dwindled and it, it got down to about 20 or so. Um, George himself had two masters and a PhD in cross-cultural communication. He was the head of the missions department at Abilene Christian University. He and Irene were the founders and the directors of the Pan-American lectureships for all the missionaries of the Churches of Christ in South America and Central America. And they would travel around the world every year. And uh, they retired. And when they retired, they retired to a beautiful little house in Missouri on a lake with a, a white swing in front of the lake. And they were disappointed hmm. because their entire dream was to evangelize the world. Wow. And they felt like it just, it didn't happen. Yeah. Before that, they got, um, Irene actually 
got sick. And that's why they had to go back to the States um, back, uh, it was like in the later 50s. That's right, that's right. And um, so it was at that point where um, George, you know, got an education and did all the other things, his PhD and everything else later on. But um, they were in Japan those earlier years. And then he went back in the workforce because of Irene's health. So they were retired. And then they heard about this group in Boston and he got asked to come and speak. And he came one Sunday and spoke to our ministry training program, which basically is all the brothers in the church. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he had never seen anything like it. And he went home to Missouri to Irene and said, we're moving to Boston. Oh my gosh. And literally at the age of 68 and Eric and I right now, you know, Erica is, I'm 59 and Erica is 32. But, um, <laughs> she looks it. Yeah, she looks it. Yeah. But um, we, we still can't have it. We're still 10 years away from where they are. That's amazing. And they left the, the dream retirement. Right. And lived in a little two bedroom apartment in Boston. And they uh, pretended to be under our leadership <laughs> in our in our ministry, but they knew us and they fell in love with Erica because she's Japanese and they loved the Japanese people right. and they tolerated me. But they they counseled us before we got married. They took care of our young marriage. They became our closest friends, our confidants, our spiritual parents. And so then they moved to Tokyo. And I will tell you for us going to Tokyo with them there, that like we could probably cry right now. There's, there's no way we can imagine having been able to make it at such a difficult time and through all the challenges without having them there to sort of pave the way for yeah. us. And you know, in Japan, age is a very important factor. Um, you are respected because you're older. And you know, we were 26 and 24 and there's no way that somebody's going to listen to somebody so young and respect their spiritual wisdom at 26 and 24. And so it, because George and Irene were there, we had a bigger you know, platform mm -hmm. because they allowed us to speak and that they would support what we did. And they would stand in front sometimes with things that we wanted to do and they would support us through everything so that we could accomplish so much more together. And we were a very symbiotic team. Mm -hmm. And it was just incredible how God prepared from 1950s to 19, 1980s and early 90s, prepared us, our relationship, to be the exact kind of relationship to help evangelize Japan. Mm -hmm. And, and Rob, I know this is going on long, but I've got to share this if it's okay. No, with go you. ahead. No. Yeah. Um, so obviously, there, it's probably one of the greatest privileges of my life to have a professor of cross-cultural communication spend like all of his energy and time focused on tutoring me. You know? <laughs> like I got, I got a free graduate educate graduate school education you know from someone who just cared and loved me very right. deeply but um one talk in particular that i want to share about is he asked me to come over one day and we had been in tokyo now for about a year or so and we sat down he said frank I, I need to talk to you about something i said sure what is it he said you know you've been here now for about a year 
and you're doing most of the preaching, you know, at the mission team meetings and you're setting the plans, you're making decisions. And he said, uh, and he said, I got to tell you, um, there have been times when I started to think, Hey, wait a second. I'm the leader of this church. (laughs) (laughs) He said, so, and this is so funny. This is George. He's six foot four, you know, (laughs) I went went and had a talk with God about it. (laughs) And he said, and I've come to this decision. He said, I've come to the decision that I want to see Japan evangelized and God wants to use you to do that. And so I'm going to commit all of my energy and all of my knowledge and everything I have to making sure that you're successful in fulfilling God's plan. Wow. And so I can't be more humbled than an incredible hero like him saying something like that to me. And that talk has stuck with me. And it's basically the talk that I have with everybody whose leadership I'm trying to support. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and they were in their seventies at this point. So we're, we're, you know, we met them when they were in their late sixties, I was 18. So 50 years older than me. That's how, you know, and then, so by the time we were on the mission team, they're in, they're well into their seventies. So just to think about that, the kind of support and belief was unbelievable. Yeah, that kind of humility is something that you carry with you for the rest of your life. So they set a pattern for us, an example for us right. of, of what it's all about. So uh, I just think they're amazing. I'm glad we get to talk about them. Yeah. yeah, we want to be George and Irene to other people. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great point. And I think that, you know, as our family of churches ages, there are many, many other people that have amazing experience um, tons of you know, battle experience, missionary experience, and can help younger people and should also consider going back on the mission field or, or doing something for God. And I think that's such an incredible example. So Erica, you knew Japanese going, going on the mission planning, just as you knew French going to France. Poor French. I know. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm the I'm the slow guy here. <laughs> what was it like for you as a Japanese American to to go to Japan? Well, for me, um, although I spoke Japanese, I spoke a different dialect, which was from the Kyushu dialect, and so I did have like a southern accent, um, which I still have to this day when I speak Japanese. It, it never goes away, <laughs> and. Um, and so I think that I had to kind of relearn the, uh, what do you call, uh, the standard Japanese. And so, cause a lot of my dialect had completely different words mm. than the standard Japanese. And so sometimes I'd be in a cab or evangelizing people and they wouldn't understand what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm going, I'm speaking Japanese. And for the, it, the funny thing is when we brought um, Takeshi and Minami with us to my hometown in Kyushu, I needed to translate for them. <laughs> <laughs> they understood for the first time that my Japanese was completely different for a reason. <laughs> But they could not understand any of my relatives. Wow. And uh, so I had to, I actually took tutoring for a year 
with two other sisters and uh, Hiromi Saomura and uh, Yoshie at um, Shinsei at the time. And the three of us for a year took Japanese with this really nice lady. And she was a very uh, proper, rich woman. So she didn't charge us at all. She said, just do whatever you want. Um, we'll, to pay, you can pay me whatever you want. And so in the end, we you know, got free lessons. Mm -hmm. And in one year, all three of us, because we had learned Japanese as children in school, somehow it all came back to us. Wow. It was somewhere back in the recesses of our minds. And each of us remembered how to read and write oh completely gosh. in one year. Wow. And I felt like I was learning it for the first time, but somewhere in the back of my, my mind and all three of us, it was in there for us, all three. Wow. So in one year from not being able to read anything in Japanese, all three of us could read a newspaper wow. by the end. You just know that it was just incredible what God did. He gave us a gift of tongues. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's right. That's right. Now, Frank, what was your experience? You you are Korean American. Um, can you share what were your, what was your experience going into a Japanese situation as a Korean? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the overall scenario is that uh, there's a very very sort of bitter. Uh, history of animosity between Japan and Korea. Uh, Japan colonized Korea uh, prior to World War II, and there were several atrocities that took place that are, every Korean person is raised knowing. And, uh, and so they've been very competitive, and, and there's been racial prejudice, uh, especially Japanese towards Korean, but also Koreans towards Japanese as well. Um, I didn't really understand all of that because I was raised in Maple Plain, Minnesota. <laughs> And but my parents did talk a little bit about that. So I had an inkling that some of that existed, but more from the Korean perspective. When we got to Japan, um, I realized that there was uh, uh, an underlying sort of racism uh, towards Koreans. But I was protected from a lot of that uh, for several reasons. One is because I was American. And um, so it was easy for people to sort of look at me as an American versus just a Korean national. Got it. Uh, secondly, uh, Koreans, uh, Japanese have an extremely high regard for education. And I went to Harvard. There you go. And Harvard being world kind of known, um, I, I, it, it sounds bad, but I got used to introducing that early in a conversation. There you go. Because at that point, then anything about me being Korean sort of went away. Right. And so that happened. And then as we um, sort of put our roots into the Japanese culture there, and you know, we had kind of made a heartfelt commitment to being in Japan uh, for the long haul, um, Erica's father was kind enough to allow me to register uh, myself, uh, my name, under his registry, as they call it in Japan. And so my last name went from Frank Kim to Frank Shinya, which is Erica's maiden name. And so that became my name going forward in Japan. Great. But the cool thing was we, we had a vote in the church and um, we asked everybody, should we keep the name Kim or should we keep the name, uh, change it to Shinya? And it, we, the vote only won by one vote. Mm -hmm. 
So the cool thing was half the church really liked the name Kim as the last name. They thought it was cool that he was Korean and wanted to use that, you know, lift that up. So that I think even though there was some prejudice, I think a lot of the Japanese did appreciate him being Korean and being in Japan and helping the Japanese people. Right. Never felt anything within our church ever, ever. Right. I mean, you know, it was just Jesus's love. That's right. But um, ultimately, I think some of the reasons that were given in that vote, we, it, I didn't even remember that until just now. We, you know, we asked the whole church for advice was that when they're first reaching out to a non-Christian and saying, this guy's our minister, right. it, it just removes one more barrier. There you go. There you go. Now, um, talking about your dad, uh, what, can you tell me a little bit about what your dad did? He's, I know he's famous in his field. And can you tell me a little bit about uh, him? Um, my, my dad was a gastroenterologist and he actually in 1969 invented what is known as the Shinya snare and helped develop the colonoscope. I'm, which, I'm sorry. Um, one, can you repeat is, that? What I just missed. There was a little break there. Can you say okay. that, repeat that again? So my father, um, was a gastroenterologist and he helped invent what is now known as the Shinya snare. It's a snare that removes polyps using a colonoscope. And um, he helped develop the uh, scope so that it, it could move through fiber optics inside the colon. Mm. And he had the help of um, one of the top executives, uh, engineers from Olympus camera who was able to insert the fiber op optics inside the colonoscope so that you didn't like before it would only go down your throat about 12 to 14 inches because then after that your esophagus and your colon area it gets all kind of windy down there and so he was able to to develop the scope so that it could turn within the um, colon and that invention um, revolutionized gastro, uh, gastroenterology. And to this day, he, my dad is actually in history books in, um, in the medical world. Mm. And uh, he's, you can read about him in Wikipedia, mm -hmm. but he was able to keep people from having a major surgery and it could be a outpatient surgery to remove a polyp, which later on he got a PhD for um, discovering how these polyps were precancerous in your stomach. Mm. And so in Japan, he was like a, a hometown hero. I bet he was. <laughs> and he was on TV often in Japan, on regular TV all the time, talking about health, eating healthy, and staying away from all the things that we say now are bad, <laughs> like red meat, you know, dairy, mm -hmm. all the things that, and fats, all the things that people say are bad for you now. He was <coughs> saying this back in the seventies and eighties. Wow. So. And if people want to look him up, what's what's his name? It's Dr. Hiromi H I R O M I Shinya S H I N Y A. Okay, thank you, thank you. You know the New England Journal of Medicine. That's the premier publication for medical in the medical field. List him as one of the top 100 innovations in the last century. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, shifting focus back to the mission, Japan's long been considered one of the most difficult mission fields, if not the most difficult. 
What were some of the, the challenges that you faced in those early years, especially the first, let's say, five years, just getting it off the ground? I think number one for the mission team members was language, you know, learning the language. There's an intricacy in the language of how you speak to people. There's honorific forms, there's the colloquial forms, slang forms, and how you speak to people can really influence their impression of you from the get-go. Mm. And so that was, I would say, number one was the language for most people. Um, I think number two is culturally, it is so different. Like you are talking to a Buddhist, um, you are talking to a Shinto, and you're inviting them to church. And that alone is like, it's like going up to somebody in America and saying, hey, do you want to come to a Buddhist temple with me? <laughs> or, and, you know, the first reaction that you're going to get is, no, not really. I'm not interested. So you're trying to convert a person that comes from a completely different background that has no concept of even God because... I worshiped my ancestors. So my concept of God was my ancestors. And so even for me to become a Christian and even after becoming a Christian, it took me a while to really understand the concepts, the basic concepts of Christianity because I didn't grow up with them. Right, right. And that, that religion was tied up in their family culture. And, um, you know, it's a very, it, it's been heavily influenced by Confucius as well. And so there's a hierarchical respect for your elders. And, uh, and so if you became a Christian, you weren't able to participate in so many of the practices that they just did as part of their family tradition, you know, worshiping the ancestors, offering, you know, uh, making offerings to them, burning incense to them, which obviously the Bible doesn't allow us to do. And so those became real, real tough challenges for anybody who made a step towards becoming a Christian. Wow. Um, there's also the culture uh, of conformity in Japan. As you know, uh, conformity was a huge issue there. And they even have a saying called deru kugiwa atairaru, which means the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. Mm. And um, utareru. 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 <laughs> See, I, I'm a little rusty. <laughs> and so um, you can cut that part out, right? <laughs> so anyways... Um, uh, the point is that, you know, as the, the nail gets hammered down because it's taking out. And if you are different from the crowd, which if you think about it, less than 1% of the population claims, claims to be Christian of any kind. Mm -hmm. So to go in a different way, to not worship your ancestors, uh, to follow a quote unquote Western God, um, you know, to break with so many of the different cultural values and mores because you're following the teachings of the Bible that required someone of incredible personal strength because they were swimming upstream from the get. Right. So that was very, very difficult. Now that eventually turned in our favor as we got the numbers, you know, and there was a big enough group that people felt safe because they took some sort of comfort and security from the fact that there was 500 people right. or 600 people. And then things sort of accelerated, but in the early days, like you're talking about, that was really, really tough. Just to give you an idea of how much the, the culture and the religion are ingrained together is that the first time I brought Frank home to Japan to meet my relatives, 
I said, oh, honey, we got to go say hi to my grandfather. And so he came following me and um, I took him in front of the Butsudan, which is a um, little shrine that everybody has in their home of their dead ancestors. And that's where my grandfather is. And his photo is there. We put flowers there every day. And then I rang the bell and I lit the incense and I said, hey, come say hi to my grandfather. And, and I'm kneeling and I'm praying to my grandfather saying, this is my husband, my new husband. Right. And it was so ingrained right. that you don't realize. You didn't even think about it. It's part of the culture. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. That's right. And then, then there was the schedule, um, which, you know, it was the time of uh, what we used to call Japan Inc. here in the United States when Japan was sort of the leading economic power. And, um, and so it had gotten that way because the Japanese people just worked so hard. There's a word called karoshi. Did I say that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that means basically, <laughs> it means working yourself to death. And, you know, in America, you go, that guy was so foolish, he worked himself to death. In, in Japan, it was like, that guy was so amazing. He worked himself to death. What a hero. And so the, the people we were studying the Bible with, they left their house at 6 or 6.30 every morning to catch a train, ride an hour to get to work. And then they would leave work at about 8 and we get home till 9 or 9.30, right, every single night. So I remember one couple that we baptized because we met the mother in the park. Erica studied the Bible with her. She got baptized. Uh, this is the Masadas, Yasushi right. and Keiko Masada. Right. Right. He was very interested. He could never come to anything. And so finally, we waited for several months, and he took his summer vacation, which Japanese people actually don't usually take. But he decided to take it. We studied every day for a week, and then he got baptized, because that was the only time that we could actually study the Bible. So, you know, our appointments were at about 8 at night. You know, our Bible talk started at 8 or 8.30. Um, you know, we would meet with people. We didn't have midweeks many times at, uh, you know, in, at night, but we would have them in the morning before work, very early in the morning, and then people would go off to work. So there was a lot of sort of challenges that we had to figure out that way. Yeah. And Sunday was the only day off from work. Like Saturday was a normal working day and Saturdays were also a school day in Japan when we first got there. It changed over time, mm -hmm. but that was, we, there was no full weekend. Yeah. So time was an issue. Wow. So you've already talked a little bit about some of the differences, changes to your approach to reach people having mid, you know, uh, midweeks at different times, anything else that you, you had to adjust or had to, to improvise to reach the Japanese? Well, you know, we, when we first started um, sharing our faith, I think we started going on campus and we thought, oh, let's just do campus first. But what we realized in Japan is campus kids still live at home with their parents. And so in some ways they were more like American teenagers than adults. And so we realized that we had to change our focus and sort of focus on people who are working mm -hmm. and in the professional world. And so Bible talks couldn't be in, in the home because everybody's home was so tiny. And so we decided that instead of having Bible talks in a home, we would have them in coffee shops. And that was, that like changed a lot for all of us. Cause for somebody to come all the way to our house, which would be big enough for a Bible talk and then go all the way home after work, 
they wouldn't get home until midnight. I mean, it was, it was just a long commute to go anywhere. So what we did was we made Bible talks that were right near people's jobs and that were central to them and that they would be in these coffee shops and we could like rent out a little room for free. And that's where we would have what we called English lessons. And <laughs> we talked about the Bible in English. And then afterwards, people who were more interested, we would set up studies with them. Wow. So that was like a real big, huge difference in the way we studied with people and the way we reached out to people. That's amazing. And now, we got there and we, we started with like the word study and things like that. And then we realized, what are we doing? They don't have any foundation at all. And so we recreated the entire study series. And I actually feel great about that because we had to teach people about Jesus. Mm. And it was revolutionary for me and Erica's faith because, well, for me, I came from that religious background. Erica was more, you know, she understood it better, but Jesus was such a linchpin to everything. Mm. And so we talk about who he was, you know, the historical background to him and uh, his resurrection, all the things that you actually, we should be teaching. Right. right. And, and so it became a very Christ centered approach towards converting people. And so that when we got to the point where they go, yeah, Jesus is the son of God, then things like following the Bible and stuff just became, of course I would do that. Right. He's the son of God. Right. And so it kind of put everything in the correct order. And so I think, Many of the Christians at that time, we just felt convicted by the freshness of their faith. Yeah. You know, right. it was just so alive to them because they had come through it through Jesus to get to their faith. So the study series, how we did ministry, there's just so many different things that were part of that. And That's then cool. one of the things we also didn't stress over was how fast somebody got converted. I think in, you know, when we were in other churches in the States, I think people were like, oh, if somebody starts showing interest they should be baptized within a week or two weeks but <clears throat> in japan we decided no let's not stress over how long it takes but let's take the time to teach them the bible and help them to learn really learn it so conversions took a lot longer like maybe months sometimes in a few of them years right. <laughs> and but we didn't stress over that we were like fine with it and then and then that made the foundation for a lot of the first Christians, very, very solid. That's great. Now, can you share some of the, some, some of the miracles you saw? Do you have any miracle stories you could share with us? Ugh, that's a hard question. There's just too many. <laughs> <I know. laughs> There's too many. Um, I would say, every, first of all, every baptism was a miracle. You know how it is in America, you go, you, we would share before someone's baptism, this person didn't even believe in God when they started studying the Bible. <laughs> well, that's every single baptism. <laughs> they had never read the Bible before. They had no faith before. And so everyone was a miracle. But there's a few that stand out. Um, you know Hideji. Um, he was a, a quadriplegic. And um, he was so bitter about life. And then he got baptized. And I remember studying when he was so bitter, he didn't want to believe in God because he was so mad. Uh, but then he, uh, I remember before his baptism, he told me, he said, I'm so thankful that I'm paralyzed because he had been paralyzed in an accident as a teenager. He said, if I hadn't been paralyzed, I wouldn't have been open to God. And this is worth more than anything else in my life. Wow. And for him to be baptized, get married, have children, 
I mean, those are the kind of miracles that just warm your heart. Yeah. And his whole, his, so many members of his family became Christians as a result of seeing him change so much. Right. So that's yeah. awesome. Then there's, um, I, I think you want to share about Mario. Yeah. So um, my, after my brother died, my sister-in-law moved in with us and, um, and her son. And so what was cool about that was we could mourn together. We could talk to each other about the pain we felt. And, and then we started studying the Bible after a few months and she got baptized and God provided her with another amazing husband. And she has now three kids and, and my nephew actually became a Christian. He's on his journey now, but, um, the other two have also been baptized as well, mm -hmm. but I just, I just felt like God provided a way to help my family to become Christians. And then my cousin, this is a cool story. Um, I had, a, I have a cousin who does all the sound now in the church to this day. <laughs> and um, he came one day to um, take the entrance exam for a college. And I said, okay, his name is Tadashi. You have to come, if you're going to come and apply to a college, you have to come to church and pray or else God's not going to let you into this school. <laughs> and, and so, but if you do that, he'll definitely get you in. <laughs> and then my uncle, he called me and he said, oh, there's no way Tadashi's going to get into that school that he's applying to. It's like a dream school. I just, and in fact, I just found out that the school that he applied to in our neighborhood, um, he got rejected from. And so he goes, so don't, don't give your cousin any ideas of, you know, false dreams. And I said, listen, and I told this to my uncle, I said, he's going to get in. And this is going to be the only <laughs> college he gets into. And, and so my uncle, he got so mad at me, but anyway, so I told Tadashi, okay, we're going to pray. We're going to pray really hard. And he goes, okay, okay. And we prayed that morning while I'm having my quiet time, he opens up this big, huge test book. That's about three inches thick. It has all the practice tests in it. So he closes his eyes, says a prayer and opens it up to like a random practice test. He comes home from after his um, entrance exam and he goes, Erica, I got in. I go, what? how do you know you got in already? I mean, I thought you get a letter and everything. He goes, I got in. And I go, no, 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 no. You can't know already. He goes, you know that practice test that I took this morning? And I go, yeah. He goes, that was the exact entrance test. Oh my gosh. For the university. And he did get in. That was the only college <laughs> he got into and it was his dream college. Oh. And, and the cool thing is, not only that, but later on, he got into, he was about to graduate. He was at the bottom of the class. And so that means he wasn't going to get a job. No disrespect. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He wasn't going to get a job. And my uncle said, well, he's going to move out to the province and I'll give him my position at my job. And I said, no, he's going to get an incredible job. Well, God had to work in a more trickier way with this one because he was at the bottom of the class. And so he got into a motorcycle accident right before he graduated. <clears throat> and so he couldn't take his finals 
for his senior year, which is how they rank you in your senior year is what, how they rank you in college in Japan. So while he's in the hospital, he asks his friends, hey, can you give me all the tests that you got, you know, all these final exams that you got so I can study from them because I'm sure the professor is not gonna give me the same test. Long story short, all the tests were the same. <laughs> he went from the bottom of his class to the top 10, you know, graduate, 10% in his graduating class, got the best job that he could have possibly gotten in Tokyo. To this day, he's in that job. He's married. He's got kids That's amazing. and has an amazing family. So oh, man. it's just, there's so many, Rob. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know and all of them are miracles, but yeah. one about the church is that um, as the church grew, we we're in that old building, we outgrew it. You remember those those days, yeah. and um, and the church was falling apart. It was yeah. so hot in the summertime. We would screw these electric fans into the walls, and then one of them fell and hit one of our visitors <clears> in the head one day. <laughs> so it was it was time to move on. So, anyways, um, but because Christianity is not known in that culture, it was very difficult to get anyone to rent a hall to us on a regular basis. It was kind of a weird thing to them. Mm-hmm you know, uh, to have a Christian group use their hall. And it was a weird thing for visitors to go to any sort of office hall or something like that. Right, right. Uh, because you could never get a school or anything to rent to you. There was no tradition for that. So that was a real damper on our evangelism. It was hard for us. Um, I think we were about 250 at the time, maybe 300. And so we started praying like crazy. We would pray all the time. Uh, we fasted for God to work. And as I shared earlier in the interview, the land that the church building sat on had originally been pretty inexpensive because there was a front yard that was in the plan to widen the highway, one of the major highways in Tokyo. Well, while we were praying uh, and, and, and our church had gotten to the point where we could no longer fit and we were really facing this wall and we didn't know what to do, we were visited by the, the highway department. And uh, they said, would you be interested in selling your land? We said, would we be interested in selling the land? Because it was quite a bit of money that would then allow us to build a building on the remaining portion of the land. We said, absolutely. We're very interested in selling the land. And so we were so motivated and they seemed motivated as well that we came to a very quick agreement to sell the land. And during that process, They came and visited. We explained who we were as a church, all of our activities and everything. And um, they ended up giving us probably the highest, their negotiating team gave us the highest price per square meter of almost anybody they had negotiated with that entire year. Wow. Because the people that they were working with before us had fallen through at the last minute and they needed to use up their budget for the year. (laughs) So they used it all on us. (laughs) And I remember going to the signing ceremony and where we signed the contract and I looked up and the person from the highway department was crying. And he said, I want you to know that our entire job is dealing with people who are greedy and are trying to grind us down and are so upset because they want to get more money from us. It has been a blessing to work with you. We're so happy to give this money to good people. And he he kept upping the price of what um, he was going to pay us 
by you know saying oh this tree is worth this much and right. this tree right. is worth, right. even like you know adding on the trees to the price that's amazing that's amazing <laughs> so that that money then um because we sold the money then we had a contact with the probably the most renowned architect in japan at the time fumi komaki and he had always wanted to design a church building because it's sort of this eternal concept right and so we negotiated with him and he designed the building and we got one of the best construction companies in Japan who was eager to work with him to build the building. Right. And so that front yard where all the brothers used to play volleyball, <laughs> you know, every Sunday, that became the source of funds for this beautiful building that is now sort of a national, um, I, I want to say a landmark. It's, a, right. it's such a beautiful building that it people is. come to see it. Mm -hmm. And it's been featured in magazines all over the world. And, um, and also a portion of that money then went to fund mission work in other places and to build church buildings in other locations. That's so awesome. God used George and Irene's, you know, original uh, wisdom in choosing that location to bless thousands and thousands of Christians around the world. Yeah. I've never seen a, a prettier church building ever. I mean, it's just the light coming in. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, that's amazing story. Now, Frank, you were preaching in Japanese within one year. Now, I've got to share a little story. I, I went to Japanese school when I arrived there. And I mean, I thought I was smart. <laughs> I thought I was smart before I, I went there going to Berkeley. It, I was so humbled. I mean, it was just, I just felt so stupid so many times. I mean, for so many experiences, how did you, how could you do it? How did you learn so quickly? How are you able to preach a full lesson within one year? That's, it's amazing to me. Uh, well, I can say that I didn't preach very well. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll say it because he's not going to say it. So Frank used to memorize his sermons in Japanese so that it would be smooth. He did this in French too. He didn't know what he was saying, but he would memorize like 15 minutes <laughs> so that he could say even a 15 minute sermon all in that language. Mm. And, and so, cause his memory ability to memorize things, um, like he'll forget it the next day, but, <laughs> but he could memorize for that week and then retain it. <clears throat> and I think those phrases started to like be a part of him and he was able to learn it really, really quickly. And, and then studying the Bible and later he went to grad school. And, and I think that was really neat because the church really honored him for getting a, a master's degree in, in Japanese at Keio later on um, uh, after a few years of being in Japan. That's so. amazing. But, but you know, um, it, it does go back to George because of his focus on cross-cultural communication. When we got there, um, George basically ordered me uh, like, like you eventually got ordered as well, but just, I just want you to know, you were in a line of, <laughs> long line of, of yeah. missionaries that George had organized that we had to go to language school. So I went for about three and a half hours a day and then study for about two or three hours outside of class every day. So a total of about six hours a day, you know, for pretty much majority of that first year, which many of our young ministers don't get the opportunity to do something like that. It right. took the wisdom of someone who had seen it and had done it you know, and understood the importance of planning long-term and making the long-term investment. That's what George did for, for me, is he kind of structured my training that way. That's awesome. Um, 
That's great. So, and, but I want to say people like uh, Rio, Miao, mm -hmm. and Takeshi played a huge role because what Erica says, I memorized it. It was only because I wrote out my lesson and then they would sit down with me. We would translate it literally word for word. And then from there I could memorize it. So I had a lot of help. Yeah. A lot of help. Yeah. Now, one of the things that my impression, I remember, um, I was talking to Kip on one of his visits out and I just remember sh sharing with Kip this, I think Kip asked, Hey, you know, how's, how's Frank doing? Like, or, you know, what's your impression of Frank? And I said, Frank is relentless. And that was my impression. I mean, it, I, I was used to working hard. I'd, I'd led my own planting, led a couple churches at that point, but I'd never seen the kind of energy, the intensity, the relentlessness, the never stopping. Um, can you, you know, you, you've built the, perhaps the largest Christian church in the history of the country. Can you comment on, <clears throat> you know, what it took, what, how, what contributed toward that growth? I mean, I, I, I've seen some things that I go, wow, I've never seen that before. What, what can you share that would, would help um, explain it? I think that, um, you know, when I, before I became a Christian, I, I really struggled with selfish ambition. And it was one of those sins that I really had to die to. Um, but when I got baptized... Uh, one of the things that I just loved the most that set me free was the fact that I could pour all of my energy and passion into doing something for God. And when we moved to Japan, um, what kind of kept us fueled was continuing to go back to what does God want here? Mm -hmm. How does God look at Japan and how does God look at the Japanese people? And understanding that God looked at Japan not as a place of, you know, glimmering, uh, beautiful buildings or uh, you know, really attractive traditions or things like that, or economic prosperity, but he looked at Japan as being a, a lost people that desperately needed him. And um, I think that, you know, just staying, trying my best to keep my heart close to God's and, and, and feeling and looking at the Japanese people through his eyes and with his heart, I, I think it just, it, it kept you motivated because there was so much to do and so many needs. Um, so I, I think, you know, and, and the more we got in, integrated into the culture and developed friendships and got to meet people and understand their struggles and their, their, uh, their loneliness and their, their desperate need for God. I mean, it just kept us going. And then I think, um, you know, the church at the beginning to when we left, I mean, there was a very strong sort of DNA that was put in the church, we were there. And I think this is the power of a mission team. You uproot and you go there for only one reason. Right, right. That's to evangelize the country, yep. you know? And I'm so thankful that that, for all the brothers and sisters that were part of that first foundation, because that DNA gets then replicated mm -hmm. into every succeeding generation of disciple mm -hmm. that gets baptized. Yep. And um, we all, we never stopped talking about the fact that the purpose of the Tokyo church was to reach all of Japan with the gospel of Christ. And that came up, I can't tell you, it probably was said 20 times a week, or, you know, it was said maybe more than that in right. Bible talks and right. D times and D groups and, you know, in church and in a sermon or in a welcome or whatever it is, it just kept getting um, deeper and deeper. It was the DNA of our entire church was we're here to reach an entire nation 
So it was never about having 100 disciples or 500 disciples or 1,000 disciples. It was never really about even being the biggest church in Japan. It was about whether or not we were going to be able to successfully reach an entire nation mm. with the gospel. Wow. And so I think that kind of kept us going. I think, too, um, something that many of us in, in the kingdom have kind of shied away from that we did a lot of is prayer and fasting. And uh, we had all night prayers pretty consistently in the church. We had, um, we fasted as a church. Like we had, like somebody had a child who was born and was dying and the whole church would fast together for that one child. Mm -hmm. um, it was normal for us to fast and pray all the time for people for um, different issues that were happening, even in the country. Um, and as a result of that, I think that even now, you know, even to this day, I know that people get together before church starts to have a prayer meeting um, at, the, at the building. It's just a part of what the church became. Right. And you pray, you rely on God, you, cause God is the one who works. Yep. And and I think we've, you know, I think in general, I think we've shied away from that as we've gotten older because it's like, oh, I'm too tired to stay up all <laughs> night. <laughs> I'm, you know, I don't want to fast anymore. I, <laughs> I right. want to have my meal. But right. I think that we've shied away from that, right. except um, as just in general, as a movement. Right. And I think that was part of our culture in, in the Japanese church. Absolutely. Now, Erica, you, you were refined. I mean, just so many things happened during that time period. Um, you've had longstanding health issues. How, how's that affected your relationship with God um, mm. and your family? It's, it's made my relationship with God. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, you I, can't, by looking at you, you'd never think that. And I, I think anyone who's ever met you would never think, oh, she's, she's got chronic illness. But like. Tell, tell me more about that. So um, I had, I was diagnosed with lupus back in 1992, officially. Okay, can you, um, what, what been, is, what is lupus? Can you, can you tell us what that is? Um, it's, it's systemic lupus erythematosus, which is a type of lupus that affects your immune system in a way that it hyper um, activates my immune system okay. to attack my body rather than to protect my body. Okay. So when I would get overly tired or overly stressed, you know, a normal person would, their immune system would work to protect its body. Mine would overwork to the point of um, starting to destroy parts of my body. Like my, I still have lung damage from my lupus or um, liver damage from my lupus um, because it attacked it. It's like almost like cancer um, when it's activated. And so I think that during those years, <clears throat> those years when I was sick, I had two little kids and it, I was barely able to get out of bed um, for maybe two years. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then I went into remission in 1995, 
which was when the new church building was built. It was like everything, everything like came together in 1995 mm. in a, in a wonderful way. Like the new church building was built. Um, my, I went into remission. It was like a big celebration in so many ways. It was also sad that my brother died that year, but, <clears throat> um, I felt like God was giving me a, another chance mm. and giving me a, a few years of reprieve. I went into uh, remission and stayed in remission until 2001. Um, and it was at that time I started to consider maybe leaving the ministry because I thought, oh gosh, I'm in my late thirties. I should start getting, you know, thinking about getting out of the ministry and doing something else. So I don't die this time. Right. And, um, but then recently with this COVID thing, um, I went in to get um, a blood test. The doctor said I switched doctors and she wanted to give me a thorough blood test. And she said, I'm really sorry, but I have to tell you, you have a new disease, um, which is Sjogren's syndrome, which is another kind of immune autoimmune disease, which causes dry mouth and dry eyes, but I didn't have any of those symptoms. Um, and then I become more susceptible to cancer. Um, hop, uh, the, uh, I forgot what kind of cancer, but anyway, but then I went into a rheumatologist to look at my blood work and give me the final assessment. And then she looked at me and said, yeah, you have Sjogren's disease. And I said, well, tell me about my lupus. And she goes, what lupus? And I said, my SLE, I just want to know how it's doing. She goes, you don't have SLE. And I said, no, there must be a mistake. And long story short, I had, I got another blood test done and this was a DNA test, blood test. It came out clear. She goes, I think you got misdiagnosed those many years ago. And it's so crazy, but I am like officially completely healed. Oh, that's awesome. Lupus. That is great news. Isn't wow. that amazing? That's totally amazing. Another yeah, miracle story. We, we, we need to tell, we wanted to tell you and Pam, you know, in Oh, person. that is yeah. great news. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That was, that was always such a shadow of your life. You know, yes. I just, oh so we're gosh. thankful because people literally on every continent, <laughs> churches across the world have prayed for Erica's yeah. health. Oh my gosh. And for her to be declared completely clear, which, you know, lupus doesn't have a cure. Yeah. Is is just an amazing miracle yeah. of God. And That's again, a- I want to say that was prayer because I feel like people prayed for me. But at the beginning of this COVID thing, Frank and I started doing daily prayer walks again, and um, and that's when we started saying, "Hey." we need to stop praying these lame prayers. Right. We've got to start praying these prayers that are like faith-filled. So it's like hashtag no more lame prayers. And, <laughs> and so I actually, we actually both prayed, heal me completely of lupus. Mm. And, and then in May I was declared that I never had it, That's amazing. That's <laughs> which amazing. is impossible. So the doctor said it's impossible. Yeah. Now, You've mentioned your brother a couple times. I remember the the night Frank called and said, "Hey, Rob, can you come over here?" Um, Erica's brother's been involved in an accident, and I remember just going, "Oh my gosh, what happened?" And you lost your brother. Can you tell me how'd you? I mean, how'd you get through that? I mean, just it's just so massive. Um, how'd you navigate yeah. that? 
Well, um, I, again, I'm going to say it's God because there's no other way you get through something like that. He was only 30 and uh, he had a whole life in front of him. And so just being in a car accident like that out of the blue was a shock to, to me. And, and I felt like what helped me heal was having Mayo, his wife, move in with me um, and Frank, because I felt I, you know, you hear these things when you go, I heard God's voice. I, I was praying and I heard God's voice telling me, ask Mayo to move and Hidoaki, her son, to move in with you guys. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking out from my prayer room and going to Frank and going, honey, I just heard God tell me something. Mm -hmm. And there are like certain times in my life where I felt like God literally like in a voice mm -hmm. spoke to me. And that was one of those moments that was so loud and clear. And I think that was a very healing thing. And then as a result of that, I think um, God used her and her life um, to help me to heal and, and to see a miracle through it and, and not to be bogged down in just sadness and grief to the point where I couldn't even get up, which is how I felt for a while. Mm -hmm. and um so wow Thanks thank for, you for asking yes thank you for sharing that if you guys could go back and and just change one thing what what would it be i mean so many amazing things happened it was such an amazing magical time um anything you'd go back and do differently yeah well eric and i have talked as you can imagine many many times about this you know um you get to a certain point in your life and you look back and um, you realize that there are things that you should have done better and you could have done better. Um, I think probably one of the main things is we would have taught more um, and lived out more the teaching on God's grace. Um, Japan is a graceless nation. Um, it, it's, that's just reflected in so many different ways in society. Um, if you don't get into the right school, at elementary school, then you're probably off of the fast track. If you go bankrupt, you're literally marked for the rest of your life. You can never get credit again. Um, it's if you make a mistake, you know, you've seen the yakuza things where you cut off your finger, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in penitence or whatever. But that's kind of the culture that it is. We taught about God's grace, but we don't think that we taught about it enough to counteract the natural gravity mm -hmm. in that country towards lack of grace. Right. And um, I think that um, we should have exhibited it more in our relationships. Uh, we should have made sure that it was uh, more prevalent in the culture of the church. And uh, we should have just taught a lot more about it because it's such a foreign concept, mm. you know, in the Japanese society. So um, that's probably our number one thing is that we should have done more teaching and uh, just sort of dem demonstrating what it means to have God's grace. Mm. Um, I think secondly, on a personal level, add to that? yeah, yeah. So I think um, just to give you an example, like uh, Manami went to a Japanese school and she was super sick. I mean, 103 fever, 
there was a test that day. I called the teacher and said, hey, could she have a makeup test? And she said, well, no, she doesn't come to school today. Then she can't, she'll get a zero for that test. Um, if I bought something from a store and I went to return it because it was already broken in the box, um, I'd say this was broken inside the box. Sorry, you bought it broken. That's your fault, not ours. Just simple things like that, um, that you realize how there's no second chance. Right. There's no mulligan in, <laughs> in Japanese society ever for right. nothing. So that was something that was a shock to me when I came back to the States. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, I, <laughs> I bought a vase that I wanted to return to Target. And as Amimi was five at the time, and as I was getting out, she was getting out of the car, she almost fell out. And so I went to grab her and the vase bashed into the car door and broke into a million pieces. I went into the store just to tell the lady, hey, I want to tell you my sob story. You don't have to give me my money back. But I just have to tell you. And she goes, show me that vase. She grabbed it out of my hands. And then she, she goes, can I see the receipt? And then she gave me my money back. Wow. And I had these tears coming out of my eyes. <laughs> I, I'm just saying like the kind of grace that there is in the States is unbelievable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that's probably our biggest thing. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's such an intense environment. I mean, being in Japan was such a shocker for me as an American, just there's no, there's no sense, there's no trace of Christianity or grace, as you mentioned, just, it feels like a spiritual wasteland, so empty, devoid of spirituality that you can feel, or at least what you're familiar with. What'd you guys do for fun in such a challenging environment? I mean, it was intense for sure. What'd you guys do just to, you know, in the midst of that? We laughed about it the other night when we talked about it. The first thing that came to my mind was, we celebrated American holidays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Christmas, Christmas was not a day off, right, in right. Japan. And so, but we made it a day off. And as angry as the teachers would get, we'd keep the kids home and we would celebrate Christmas. And we did Thanksgiving. I remember we had to look just to get a turkey, you know, and then you had to get one that fit in the little ovens that they had in Japan, right, you know, so right. it, was, it was kind of tricky. It was chicken most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> But, but then we did that with a lot of friends like yourselves and Pam, yeah. you, know, oh, you yeah. and Pam and your kids. Uh, we celebrated probably every Thanksgiving, every Christmas with Chris and Alice and Jacobs and their yeah. boys. Yep. And we continued that tradition uh, when we moved here. And so we probably have, with the exception of maybe the four years that they were here, or three years that they were here, we have pictures from every Christmas for the last like 30 years. Oh my gosh. Of being together with them. So yeah. it's, it's the good times like that, yep. creating memories. Yep. Honestly, there are a lot of fun things in Japanese culture. You oh, know, yeah, definitely. Karaoke, what they call yep. karaoke. <laughs> I mean, if you had told me in college that I'd be doing that kind of stuff, I would have said, there's absolutely no way. We got into it, you know? <laughs> um, well, you guys are both very musical and you have good voices. So I was always very impressed. Uh, no, it was an embarrassment. <laughs> You know, the Japanese festivals, the fireworks, all that kind of stuff. We just tried to engage ourselves in the country and, 
the culture. There are many fun things. And Erica's family lived there. So we were able to spend got a lot of good time with them. And honestly, we were talking just recently about how much fun our staff had. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember so many good memories going out to your, you had a family home in Notohanto, which is a peninsula on the, the China, um, Western, the Western Sea. Sea there. Yeah. I just, it was an amazing, just so many good memories. I, yeah, I, I had awesome. fun for sure. Yeah. And we actually included all our kids for our staff retreats. Yeah. yeah. So oh we gosh. all brought our kids. We had times that we did fun things with the kids together as well as, but our staff was so much fun. Oh I, yeah. I, I, I got to remember. A- just, I, I got to say, Rob, you brought a lot of fun to the staff. <laughs> uh, you, I think you are sort of this breath of fresh air and revolutionary impact on our staff because we would be in the middle of something so intense and you'd be like, so <laughs> let's go have some fun. <laughs> or let's go eat. <laughs> it, it must have been my ADD or something like that. That's so funny. Uh, oh my no, gosh. It was great. It no, was great. We, we had fun. Like, I feel like we did, we were, uh, the staff was a family. It was a family. Uh-huh. Definitely. And definitely we, felt that way. We did a lot. And, and it's neat because a lot of our kids are all Christians yep. to this day. And so because we were a family, we all pulled together and, and I I just, I wish that, you know, that were true for a lot of staffs, but I feel like that was one of the things that we, I feel like we, we all did well. Now we may have, we've covered this quite a bit, but I, there's a mission team, like a revived mission team to Budapest, Hungary right now that Sean Wooten's leading uh, with David De Los Santos. And, you know, it's my dream to continue to plant churches, just keep on building the kingdom. What could church builders today take away or adopt from what you were doing during those first 10 years? You've talked about the fasting, the prayer. You've talked about the the flexibility and schedule just being improvising. Anything else you want to add to that? We may have just covered it enough, but anything else that comes to mind? One thing I think of is just have a lot of faith and then be creative, Mm -hmm. you know, believe in your crazy ideas that the Holy spirit gives you because sometimes we just do church the way we always kind of picture it in our heads, Right. but being willing to do something that you've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And um, I appreciate you doing these podcasts, but you know, things like this, like doing something that no one's ever done before and, um, and trying it out and mm. with faith right. and seeing if it works, because we did, we had so many creative ideas, a, a lot of them were a flop <laughs> and then, but then there were the few that were really successful because we had faith. We were right. willing to try different things. Right. And, and I would say, um, Make sure that your DNA is set, you know, in your church. Um, so like we talked about, the DNA of the church is to reach the entire nation or the entire city and fill it with the gospel. Um, but that then dictates sort of as a trickle-down effect how you do things because you want to do things that are able to scale to that level. So, right. for example, um, if you're preaching, sometimes it's tempting if you're only preaching to 20 people to throw it together. Right. Yeah. And, and to have a service that's sort of just slapped together. Hmm. But if you think about the fact that, Hey, someday there's going to be 2000 people here. 
Right. You know, we want we want the mayor of the city to walk into the service and be impressed. Right. That's the kind of sermon I need to preach day in mm. and day out. Um, that's the kind of uh, tightness of the program that we want to plan day in and day out. Mm. And if you kind of have that in your mentality, then all the things that you do are at a level of excellence that sort of become a conviction inside yeah. of your members. Right. That, that we're not doing something for just this little group of people. We're only a seed. Right. And we're creating a seed that's going to grow into something huge. Right. So making sure that that DNA is at everything that you do is super essential. And, and you remember we would have concerts and you know, yes. we'd have uh, men's forums, you know, men's <laughs> programs or businessman's programs. Yeah. We'd all dress up in our suits. We'd make sure the podium was just right. And there'd be 35 people out there or 100 people, but it could have been 10,000 and been the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that that mindset of excellence, whether you're leading a Bible talk, whether you're doing a, a midweek lesson, or even doing a short five minute sharing, like we made sure that they were amazing. Yeah. And just, I think that that kind of mindset makes the church excellent, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Final question. What advice would you give to a person, man or woman, who dreams of making a difference with their life? Someone, who, whether they're full-time, not full-time in the ministry, young, old, someone who wants to make this life count for God. Mm-hmm. That's something that I still think about now, you know, for myself is allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you. And when you feel prompted by God to do something, give it all your heart Mm. and believe in it and don't doubt yourself. And, and that's something that, I mean, I'm even writing a book, a novel right now that I've never done before. That's a new thing. You know, we started the family ministry recently um, in Denver that was a new thing that it was, you know, started out helping out with the teens, but we said, no, we want to make sure every family in the ICOC does well. That's, that was our goal in starting it. And, and I think God just, the Holy Spirit has guided it to becoming bigger than we even imagined. So. Awesome. Yeah. I think believe in a big God, Mm -hmm. believe in a big God who has a huge dream for us as people and for us individually, and then keep listening to his voice because the line that we're going to travel is not straight. Mm-hmm. It's going to take a lot of different twists and turns, but, but every step along the way builds to something that God has in store for you. And so, you know, I was talking about how going to a Korean church when I was little was the cross-cultural training that I needed that I didn't know I needed, you know, for years later. And then we got out of the ministry and we came back here. Erica was, you know, going through her health challenges. And I was very concerned that I hadn't been a good husband and supporting her. And it was a difficult choice. Got Went into the working world. But then that's an experience that I needed to be an elder. Because as an elder of the church, 99% of the people that I'm shepherding are having careers and professions and they go through their job, they get unemployed or they begin, they apply for a job. So those kind of things, um, you know, I think about right now, uh, we were given the opportunity to really focus on our kids and help them become Christians. And um, God bless us with that. And now we have grandkids and we're so locked into the family ministry. I, I didn't think that that would be our path, but now we think 
every single family in the entire world and all of our fellowship in every country is going to have kids. Yeah. And we want to do something that's going to help all of them to baptize their kids mm. and help the next generation to be faithful. And so it's not a straight line. But if you keep listening and you keep believing in a huge God, he will open up new doors all the time. So don't get discouraged about the doors that close. Mm. Keep looking forward in expectation and faith to the doors that open. Yep. And then, like Erica said, go through them yep. with boldness and faith. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, Frank and Erica, thank you so much for the time. And I just have to say, there, there's not a couple, a couple I respect more in, in this world. I mean, the fact that God allowed me to go to Japan, I remember when you first were there and all my friends, all my Asian friends were going overseas to Japan <laughs> and to the Philippines and Thailand. I'm like... Hey, what's the matter with me? You know, <laughs> And I got passed over and I remember the call when you called and, and asked if we would consider moving out there. And we we're like, absolutely. We we're so thrilled to be considered. But those were some of the best 10 years of our lives. And to be able to be mentored by you, to be trained and to apprentice under your leadership. What a gift from God. And uh, I just love your preaching and your leadership. It was an amazing, amazing time. Learned so much, made such amazing friends. And uh, I just want to say thank you. So really appreciate your taking the time and you are a gift to the kingdom. So thank you very much. And oh, we're thankful oh, for we're you, thankful and, for you Pam. and Pam so much. Yeah, your family is amazing. Yes. We're, they're very special to us. So. We're, we're grateful that, you know, here you guys are not even Asian. <laughs> <laughs> with a new baby um, oh, move yeah. out to Tokyo. It was wow. awesome. Kudos was, to you guys. Yeah, it was a blessing. Were great friends to us. Thank you so yes, much. You're welcome. For you guys. And I want to thank you for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and let your friends and family know. My goal is to inspire you to make this life count, to live a no regrets life, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.